Well, hey, good morning, Harvest. How are we doing? Good. Hey, do me a favor. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5. We're going to be hanging out in Matthew 5 this morning. And um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, just raise your hand. We have people coming down the aisles that would love to give you a copy of God's Word. Get that into your hands. We're going to be in Scripture all morning. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, please keep that as um, our gift to you. We'd love for you to bring that home. And uh, we are working our way through a series this fall where we are kind of working through the Ten Commandments one by one. And here's what I would say. We are in a really interesting run of commandments. Uh, Last week, uh, my dad had thou shalt not murder, right? And then rightly because of the politics of today and where our culture lies, there was a conversation about abortion. That was a, a, a difficult message, thou shalt not murder. I have you shall not commit adultery today. And then next week we have you shall not steal. So it's like, man, right? It's politics, sex, and money. It's the trifecta of things people aren't supposed to talk about we're talking about uh, today. And then here's the truth. I have something against this service today. Um, This stinking service gave my dad a round of applause as he was leaving last week after his message. And a couple things about that. First of all, with Send Men have already been born with large heads. We don't need your help, okay? You're not helping us when you do that. Um, And then the second thing, um, I called my dad after the service. I'm like, yeah, I'm preaching on adultery next week. I don't think I'm getting a round of applause when the message is over. And um, Exodus 20, 14, it's five words. You shall not commit adultery. And here's the big idea. It's this. It's that it's the arena of sexual identity is where our gospel identity really comes to light. And as I've been preparing this week, um, I've talked to many people and I've said, the reality is today there's no way to talk about adultery and not have the message feel difficult or feel heavy. And there's a couple reasons for that. The first is, is we live in a culture more and more where adultery and sexual sin is the normal. It's standard operating procedure. And we're being discipled, informed, and influenced by this culture and the view of sexuality every single day. And I'm not going to spend too much time talking about uh, the culture's view on sex and gender and those things. If you are interested in where we land on that, we did an entire series last fall called a Christian Worldview, where we contrasted a Christian worldview with the views of our culture. Those are all online. We have an entire uh, weekend dedicated to sex, marriage, and gender. You guys can go online and check that out. Um, but here's what I would say quickly. Um, we live in a culture where sexual identity is viewed as our primary identity. And one of the most important freedoms in our culture's mind is sexual freedom. To sleep with whoever we want, whenever we want, we believe that this is a fundamental right. And what's wild to me, what's interesting is, if you look at most of the other commandments we see in the Ten Commandments, there's still a social stigma around them. Here's what I mean. If you go to the average person in our society, saved or unsaved, and you're like, do you think murder's wrong? Right? There might be a disagreement on what qualifies as murder, but yeah, like, yeah, it's wrong to take a life. It's wrong to murder. Do you believe that stealing's wrong? Totally. Do you believe that lying's wrong? Yes, it's wrong to lie. Do you believe that sex outside of marriage is wrong? They're going to look at you like you're from Mars, right? They're going to be like, what are you talking about? Like, that's not even considered anymore in our culture. In fact, there are many in our culture that would say to hold a biblical view on marriage and sex makes you the problem. Not everyone else. So the reason um, it's so difficult is, is it's so different from culture. But here's the other hard part. Look at me. Most of us, 
most of us walk into this room this morning with sexual sin and brokenness either in our past or ongoing in a way that is secret. And so what's going to happen even as I'm preaching is that the enemy is going to whisper lies into your ear and say that your past failure or your sin defines you. And you're going to feel lies which are feelings of shame or dirtiness or ugliness. And I just want you to hear from the beginning, my goal is not to shame anyone. We are saved by Jesus Christ. We are new creations. In fact, I have been praying all week that this time together would be a life-changing beacon of hope for some and that we would see in new, beautiful ways God's love for us, even in the uncomfortable arena of adultery and sexual sin. So here's what we're gonna do this morning. I'm just gonna lay out my agenda. I first want to just clearly explain what adultery is. And the reason is, is we are finding more and more as we minister to people, they don't know what adultery is. They don't know what sexual sin is. And and if you are growing up without a Christian context and you're being influenced and informed by culture to have sex outside of marriage, to commit adultery, these are normal things. So I just want to lay out what it is. And then I want to explain why adultery is a violation of God's moral law. It's not enough to know the what. You need to understand God's heart and why he speaks out against it. We're going to do a quick flyby of an example that will serve as a warning to our heart of how people walk a very common path towards adultery and failure in this area. And then we're going to talk about how the gospel impacts our hearts today moving forward. So let me do this. Let me ask you, if you're with me, can you say I'm with you? All right, let's go. Love you guys. (laughs) All right, what is adultery? Let's start there. Here's the definition for the sake of clarity we're going to use today. Adultery is any sexual activity outside the context of a biblical marriage. And um, the Bible will use different phrases. It'll use sexual immorality. It will use adultery. It will use fornication. The truth is, is the Bible condemns all of these things. So we're going to put all of them together under this definition of adultery. Any sexual activity outside the context of a biblical marriage, a lifelong covenant between one man, one woman made before God. All right, what are things that would fall under this definition? Affairs would. Cheating on your spouse. Being unfaithful. That is adultery. Open relationships. Couples agreeing together to have sex outside the context of marriage. Swinging, still adultery. Casual sex before marriage. One night stands. Hookup culture. Right? If you're ever in a situation where you're being asked to just swipe right and peruse through options, you're not in a great spot, I would argue. But that is commonplace today. Um, having sex while you are dating is adultery. Having sex while you are engaged, even when you know that marriage is in your horizon, to, to, to um, move against God's plan and desire, it's still adultery. Living with each other, playing married before you are married is adultery. Um, Sending explicit photos to people who are not your spouse, prostitution, phone sex, all sorts of different things could fall in this category. But here's the thing about this command. It's not just about what you do or your physical actions. It's actually a condition or disposition of our hearts. And this is what Jesus speaks into in Matthew 5. Look at Matthew 5, verses 27 through 28. Jesus is speaking his Sermon on the Mount, and he's going through these commandments. And what you're going to see is is he actually elevates God's standard for holiness. Here's what he says. 
He says, you have heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See what he's doing? He's saying it's not just a a physical action, but if you are looking at lust with a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. It's a heart position. It's a disposition. He's raising God's standard of holiness. So we can't just think about adultery in terms of the physical action. We also have to ask the question, what is lust? Well, here's a definition for lust that I found that I really like. It's this. It's a sexual desire that dishonors its subject and disregards God. It dishonors its subject and disregards God. What does this look like? This looks like fantasizing in your mind about someone who is not your spouse. That's lust. Undressing people in your mind. Viewing pornography and masturbation. That is lust. And some of you are thinking right now, wow, Cal, you're getting really specific. And this is making me a little bit uncomfortable. And I would just lovingly um, want to show you, I'm not being any more specific than Jesus was when he was teaching on these things. Look at verse 27 again in Matthew 5. He says, have you heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Look what he says right after. Think about the context of lust. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So in the context of speaking on lust, he goes right into this idea that if your right hand causes you to sin, you need to cut it off. Can I just make something very clear? It is obvious that he's not talking about stealing here. And this is also not a pass for lefties, just in case anyone was confused, right? This is a, it is clear and obvious what Jesus is talking about. So that's the what. Now we need to get to the why. Why does lust and adultery violate God's moral law? Right? Why does God care? Why is lust and adultery wrong? Right? The common mentality in our day and age is, hey, what happens in the bedroom is private. I don't care what you do as long as you're not taking advantage of someone or hurting someone and it's consenting adults, it's all good, I don't care, why should God? Well, there's three really important reasons God cares. And here's the first, because adultery is a rejection of God's design. It rejects God's design for marriage and sexuality. First Thessalonians 4, three through five says this, He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality and that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor and not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Okay, Paul makes a really interesting argument. He says, hey, church, the reason why we honor one another with our sexuality and we live in holiness towards God with our sexuality is because we know him. Because we have a relationship with God and we understand his design for marriage and sex. And he says, listen, the Gentiles who don't know God, they're going to act very differently than us. And I would just say this, we shouldn't be shocked that as we as a culture 
more and more and more reject God's law, reject God's authority, that we're landing exactly where we are in the area of sexuality. People don't know God, and it doesn't surprise me that this freedom being the highest priority is where people are landing. But Paul's like, it can't be like that for us as Christians, because we know God and we have a relationship with God, and that's going to inform our sexuality. And church, one of our problems is, is we have cheapened marriage and we undervalue its power. Let me look at Genesis 2. I want to show you where God institutes marriage. In Genesis 2, it's on the screen, 24 and 25. It says this. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, a couple really cool things I want to point out about this text. Um, first of all, marriage is the first institution we see God make after creation. So, so he creates the world, he creates the garden, he creates man and woman. And the first thing he does is he says, I want you guys to be together for life in a lifelong relationship. And I'm going to give you the gift of sex to help promote unity and oneness that you might become one flesh. And here's the other thing that's amazing. It's the only institution we see God establish in scripture before sin enters the picture. It's established pre-fall. It's not a response to sin or brokenness, but in part of God's original good design, a man and a woman would commit their life to one another, that they would care for one another and live life together, build a family together, be best friends, be completely devoted to that one person, that they would find love, safety, friendship, partnership with one another for life. Isn't that beautiful? This was God's heart and design for us. This is how society and mankind was set up to flourish. It's a beautiful thing. And sex was the gift that God gave us to bind us to our spouse and to promote oneness. Church, I need you to hear me. Sexual desire and sex are not bad things. In fact, they're incredible gifts when used under the context of God's right design. They're extremely powerful. We have relegated sex to just uh, something you do for fun. It is meant to be much more than that. But here's what you need to understand. When we choose to engage in sex outside of its design, we're actually saying something about what we believe about God. We're saying, God, I don't trust you. We're saying, God, I reject your design. I reject your authority as my creator. I'm disregarding the fact that you are God and have given clear parameters for how I am to use this gift. It's a rejection of God and a rejection of God's design. Here's the second reason God cares, um, because it dehumanizes others. One of the problems, the, one of the massive problems with lust that we don't like to think about is we're actually taking someone who God has created and knows and loves dearly, and we're making them less than human. Here's what I mean. It means we are reducing people to only their physical appearance. We're saying, I don't care about your soul. I don't care about your intelligence. I don't care about your hopes and dreams or fears. I am not committing myself to you. I do not care about what is best for you. Your only value is what your body can do for mine. You exist for my pleasure. When we choose to engage in lust, we are turning ourselves in our mind to a wicked, evil, twisted God where others exist just for our pleasure. It's really dark and gross if you think about what we're actually doing. Then here's the third reason. The reason it's a violation of God's moral law is because its result is devastation. It devastates others. 
It devastates society and it devastates ourselves. And listen, I could spend an entire 10-week series talking about the devastation that broken sexuality has on our hearts and on our culture, but I'm going to fly through these for the sake of time. Um, let's talk about others first. Here's what I would say. Um, I've been in enough rooms and counseled with people who've just confessed affairs that I know that when a guy is cheating on his wife, he is doing everything he can to not think about the pain and devastation he's causing his wife and his family. He's got to lie to himself, he's got to distract himself because when he thinks about what that's going to do to his kids, what that's going to do to future generations, the brokenness that that's going to lead to his marriage, how it's going to break it's his wife's heart, that it will cause them to crumble and have a panic attack. When you're in an adulterous relationship, there's certain things you just can't think about because the devastation of your actions are so great. Society. Um, sexual brokenness devastates society. And if you could just take some time and look at the effects that pornography has had on our culture, it's links to depression, to suicide, to fatherlessness, to uh, addiction, and then also things like the sex slave industry, abuse, all of that is fed by pornography, sexual violence. So much of these things that we all agree is awful in our society is fed by lust and pornography, and yet that business is growing and thriving every single day. Um, and then ourselves. And church, I want you to look at me. Here's what I believe. I'm convinced of this. I believe that people, at the end of the day, we want the results of God's design and we want the blessings of the things that God has created. And that's true of marriage and sex. Like, like I think everyone is like, man, I do want to find the person that I'm gonna spend the rest of my life with. And I want a great, healthy marriage and I want to be faithful and I want my spouse to be faithful and I want us to be close. Like I'm a pastor, so I do weddings and I'll be hanging out with the new uh, bride and groom at the wedding and I'll be like, how are you guys doing? Are you so excited? I've never once heard them say, yeah, I'm really excited about today, but what I'm super pumped about is my third husband, right? They're like, I know this one's not gonna work and probably the next one, but I can't wait till husband number three. No, they never say that. They're like, I found the person I'm gonna be with forever. This is the love of my life. Like, I'm so excited. This is what we want. Like, I've never had a kid in my youth ministry grow up and say, man, when I grow up, I'm really looking forward to paying child support, right? We don't want the brokenness. What we want is the result of God's great design. Our problem is we don't want to trust him and be faithful in the process. So we lie and we hide and we cheat and we blur lines. And then what happens is, is the very things we do, we're working against ourselves when really the things we want, God has laid out and says, here's how you can have them. A pastor and mentor and friend of mine, his name's Chad Moore. He's a pastor in Arizona. Uh, I think he said it perfectly. He said this, he said, we so often wrestle with God for all of the things we don't actually want rather than yield to God and receive exactly what we need. Like God's saying, man, I've created sex and marriage in a way that is for your heart, it's for your safety, it's for your protection, that you and your spouse would thrive, and yet we make decisions in our mind and in our actions to do everything we can to try to thwart God's plan. It's like in the area of sex specifically, we forget that God has our best intentions in his heart and his design. He gave us these laws and marriage and sex because he loves us, not to devastate us. 
All right, so do me a favor. Turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to 2 Samuel 11. I want to shift gears quickly now and go from the what and the why to to kind of be very, very pastoral. And, And I want to give a warning because what I see in Scripture and what I see in doing ministry is that there's a very common path that people tend to walk down as they head towards adultery and sexual sin. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1. This is a very famous passage. It's the passage of David and his sin with Bathsheba. Here's what it says. 2 Samuel 11, 1. It says, In the spring of the year, it's time when the kings go out to battle. And David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. So here's the first step on the common path that leads to failure in the area of sexuality. Um, we need to reject or neglect your right responsibilities. Very, very often we are getting ourselves in trouble when we start to neglect our right responsibilities. So you see it right in the text. It says, it was the time of spring where the kings go off to war. So it was like it was scheduled. War was scheduled back then. It's like, let's get through winter. Let's get through when the weather's bad. But in spring, we'll all go out and fight each other. Crazy, but that's what it was. And David was a warrior king. He, he was a great warrior. He defeated the Philistines. He cleared out much of the Canaanite people. In fact, when David wanted to build the temple for God, God was like, David, your son needs to build it. You have too much blood on your hands. David was the man's man, the warrior king. He should have been out fighting with his men. That was his role as king. That was his job. That was his responsibility. But here's what happened. Israel was so strong. They were so powerful. He knew we're going to wipe out these people. And he's like, I don't need to go. I'm just going to hang at home. I know this is my job. I know that this is my responsibility. He just got apathetic. He said, I'd rather hang out where it's nice, where it's comfortable. I know this is what God's calling me to, but just right now I'm going to take a break from those responsibilities. He got to the point of apathy, which led to a dangerous slide. So here's a question. What are our right responsibilities? Well, I would ask you first, how's your relationship with the Lord? Right? We are created first and foremost to know and love God and to worship him. Are you stewarding your heart towards the Lord? How's your prayer life? Are you sitting under the authority of God's word? Are you in scripture? Are you confessing sins? Are you engaged in worship? Is church and small group in Christian community a priority in your life? These are good things that we have been called to to fuel our fire for our walk with the Lord. Do you take these things seriously? Or have you gone apathetic in your prayer life? Are you not in God's word? Are there other things that have taken a higher pursuit or place of um, purpose and importance in your life? Here's another right responsibility. How's your marriage? Are you pursuing your spouse? Are you serving them? Do you care for them? Are you communicating well? Are you resolving fights in a way that is quick and honors the Lord? Are you pursuing unity? Are you having fun together? Are are you saying, hey, I've committed my life to you. You are the most important person in this world to me. Are are, are you having date nights? Are, Are you pursuing each other in a way and pursuing a marriage that would honor the Lord? Then here's another one. Um, Are you working hard? I tell young guys all the time, like, it's a blessing from the Lord to go to bed tired every night because you've worked hard all day. It spares you from a lot of trouble. 
Are you being faithful with the things that God has called you? Are you working hard at school? Are you studying? Are you pursuing the things that God has placed on your table and saying, I'm going to give my best to them as a sacrifice of worship to you? We start to get in trouble when we get apathetic with the things that God has called us to. Look at verse two. It says this. It says, it happened late one afternoon. That's kind of ominous language, isn't it? It happened late one afternoon. It says, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, is it not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? All right, so here's the second step in this path to sexual failure. It's this, um, just hang around the edges of temptation. Just hang around the edges, right? So it's in the afternoon. David's hanging out in his palace. He should be out at war, but he's not. And, and he goes walking. And here's what I would say. He, he sees Bathsheba bathing. Now, first of all, Bathsheba wasn't doing anything wrong. She was bathing on a roof and all of the men were out of the villages. They were at war and she was bathing up high so that she wouldn't be easily visible. In fact, probably the only area she might have been visible to was the king's house because the king would have had the tallest house in the community. She wasn't flaunting herself. She wasn't doing anything inappropriate. And let's give David the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he didn't go out looking to see a naked woman. Maybe he saw her by accident. But then look what happens. You see it right in the text. It says, and then David sent and inquired about the woman. Right? He chose to take the second look. He chose to take the third look. He chose to let his mind wander. He chose to say, man, I got to find out more about this girl because she's really beautiful. Like, he was hanging around the edges, kind of playing with fire, hoping he wouldn't get burned, but he was moving towards this in his heart. You see the progression happen, right? For us, this looks like flirtation with a pretty girl in the office. It's harmless. It's fun. We're just teasing. I like to make her laugh. We're just joking around. Nothing's going to come of it. It's being emotionally available when it's not appropriate to be emotionally available, it's saying, hey, I'm going to be here for you, and you can tell me things that you can't tell anyone else, and this person's not your spouse. These aren't appropriate conversations to have. It's having ongoing text messages or um, video chats with someone that your spouse isn't aware of. It's having email accounts or social media pages that no one else knows about. So there's not a lot of accountability for what you can and can't do. You're kind of free to do what you want. You're hanging around the edges of temptation. It's watching explicit TV shows or reading explicit books that you know is going to have material in there that's going to lead your heart and mind into places that aren't great. It's dipping your toe into temptation, getting near the fire, but convinced you won't get burned. Look at verse four. It says, so David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she'd been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. All right, here's the third step. It's this, it's set your heart on sin. Do you see how this path works? It started harmless enough. He just got a little lazy, took his eyes off what he was supposed to be doing. Then he started flirting with temptation, but it moved then to a choice to do what he knew was wrong. 
He knew he was dishonoring God. He knew who this woman was. He knew that she was married. He knew he was committing adultery. But the choices he had made had set him on a path that it was too late to turn around. And he got to this point where he's like, I don't care. I'm going to serve myself. I'm going to be selfish. I'm going to use sex outside of God's design. I'm going to reject him and do what I want. And then the fourth step is this. It's simply hide from God and others. And I'm not going to have time to read the rest of the story, but if you know the story, you know that what happens is David freaks out when he hears Bathsheba's pregnant, so he tries to lie and hide the sin. He brings her husband back, tries to get him drunk, so he'll go home and sleep with his wife so they can cover up the pregnancy. When Uriah is too loyal and honorable, won't leave his men to go do that. David then has him murdered in the battlefield. And he's hiding, he's covering, he's lying, he's keeping things concealed. And in Psalm 32, David would say, when I stayed silent, my bones wasted away. And you have to understand, this is a man that was called a man after God's own heart. David fiercely loved the Lord. And if a man who loved the Lord this much could find himself on this path, don't think for a second that we are not capable of walking this same path. But you see his heart? He's like, man, my relationship with God went stale. It was like I was wasting away. My joy and my vitality got sapped from my life. And church, here's what I would say. I want you to hear my heart. Um, my heart breaks right now because I know that there are some of you who know exactly what David's saying because you're living that reality right now. You have secret, unconfessed patterns of sin that you're hiding from God and hiding from others and it is devastating your soul and your hearts and you don't know what to do and you feel trapped. See, sin always, always takes way, way, way more than, than itself. It, it leads us into places we don't wanna be. Man, I have sat with so many men in tears being like, I didn't think it was a big deal. Started watching pornography when I was in high school and college and now I have this addiction that is devastating my family and I can't break free and it's ruining my life. So here's what I want to close with. I, I wanna to explain to you that this doesn't have to be our reality. And, and I close with just the question, what now? And there's three things for us that I want to encourage us in today. Here's the first. We need to embrace our gospel identity. We need to embrace our gospel identity. And the best passage that I think shows this is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Paul is writing to a church that he planted that's a young church that's growing up in a culture that's very, very similar to ours. There was a lot of sexual dysfunction and brokenness in the Corinthian culture. And here's what he says. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. All right, that's a pretty exhaustive list. He's like, God cares about these things. How you live matters. Don't lie to yourself and think that God isn't watching. But look at verse 11. And then he says, as such were some of you. And I love verse 11. If you take notes in your Bible, you might want to underline that because here's what he's saying. Look at me. He's saying, listen, if you come in this room today and you have sexual brokenness in your past, all that means is that you're like everyone else. He's saying, listen, this was our story. 
This is who we were. And, and what shame does is it, it says, you're the only one that is like this. You're the only one that's struggling with this. You can't talk to anyone. You can't find forgiveness. You can't find redemption. You're gonna be defined by this forever. And Paul's like, no, no, remember, this is who we are. And by the way, we should have a deep love for those who don't know the Lord because it's not like they're wicked and we're clean. It's not like they're evil and we're good. We've been saved by Jesus because God showed his love to us when we don't deserve it. But this this is who we were. Okay, but here's the amazing thing. But we're no longer defined by that. Look at verse 11. And as such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. He's saying that is not your identity. That is not who you are, but you were washed. You were made clean. You were given a new heart and a new mind and you've been loved, you've been forgiven, you've been transformed. And God, when he sees of you, he's not holding your past sin against you. But what he's saying is, is you are my son or my daughter and I love you and I'm for you and I'm with you. And there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Listen, our sin does not have as much power as the power of Jesus Christ when he defeated sin and death on the cross. He is king, he's victorious, he's Lord, and his death in our place for our sin makes us clean. It is our identity. So we are not ruled and defined by shame and failure. We are defined that we are broken people who've been restored and made new by God. Amen? This is where we have to believe the gospel. God knows our sin. He's not shocked by it. He's not surprised. And yet he willingly forgives and loves and moves towards us. Church, don't allow your identity to be controlled by shame or fear. This is the areas where God's transforming light is powerful. Here's the second thing we need to do. We need to remember that God desires purity, not perfection. And church, by the way, this is really, really good news. In fact, turn to the person sitting next to you and say, this is really good news. And here's why this is good news. Because I think there might be a lot of us in here that's like, man, I wish I would have known this a long time ago. I wish I would have heard this when I was younger. I wish I wouldn't have made decisions in my past that, that, that have brought in pain and hurt. And, and I think it's easy to believe the lie that's like, oh man, if I would have gotten on the right path, then I could be okay, but this is just not for me. Here, here's the good news that God desires purity and not perfection. Listen, we can't change the past, right? Very, very few of us, if any of us, can honestly say, man, we've been perfect in these areas. I probably would want to get you like checked out at a hospital. You're probably not in your right mind. But here's the thing. We can all pursue purity today, can't we? Like today can be the moment like, hey, I'm going to honor the Lord with my thought life. Hey, I'm going to delete the apps that um, are causing me to stumble. Hey, I'm going to get accountability. I'm going to be open and transparent in small group. I, I, I'm going to have the hard conversations. I'm going to repent before the Lord. I'm going to cut off relationships that need to be cut off. Like I am going to follow the Lord and pursue him in church. When we do that, I promise you the blessings of the Lord are gonna flow down in your life. That God is a God that promises that when we honor him and walk in obedience, he loves to bless us. And he will restore the things that you thought were irrevocably broken. I promise you he will. 
might not look exactly how we think. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but here's what I promise you, that God is faithful to his word and blessings follow obedience and that's what he desires. We can start that path today. That's good news. And then here's the last thing. Um, I want to encourage you to be a source of hope for others. Uh, Last Sunday, I uh, had Paul and Beth Tarno over to our house for dinner. And some of you might know Paul and Beth. Most of you probably don't. Paul is the chairman of our elder board. He's been an elder at our church since our our, our church was founded. He has um, served you guys in a leadership role so faithfully for so many years. And he's going to hate that I do this. But you know where he is right now? He's in the sound booth working for our production ministry because that's the kind of servant he is. And um, we had them over. I've been friends with them for a long time, care about them deeply. And what I love about Paul and Beth is they have four adult children now. All of them are plugged into churches. All of them are serving the Lord. All of them are honoring the Lord with their life. And so I asked Paul and Beth, I'm like, what's your secret? Like, I'm trying to learn because my kids are growing up fast and I, I want wisdom. Like, how did you raise kids that love Jesus like your kids do? And, and Paul says something interesting. He goes, Cal, you know, I never went to a class or like a seminar on how to parent your kids, right? He goes, it was actually more simple than that. He goes, Beth and I just made a promise to each other that whether it's issues like God or sex or politics, When those things came up in our home, we would just talk about them openly and honestly. Like mom and dad talked with their kids about sex. And they're like, a lot of times our kids were super uncomfortable and they hated it and they would run out of the room. We didn't care. We wanted to be a source where we'd be open with them. We talked about our faith. We talked about culture. Like we were engaged in the conversation, discipling their hearts. And then he goes, and listen, and then when our kids messed up, when they failed, when they weren't perfect in these areas, we didn't freak out. We didn't condemn them. We didn't judge them. But guess what we said? We said, all right, here's an opportunity to understand what repentance looks like. Here's what grace looks like. Here's what forgiveness looks like. Here's what redemption looks like. Here's what wisdom looks like. Let us help you walk through this road to recovery together. We were just part of the equation for them. And church, I I just want to say this. Um, Our kids need us. And so often Christian parents, because of the failures of their past, sit quietly on the sidelines and they allow culture to raise our kids in the areas of sexuality. And I'm telling you, they're giving a very different message that doesn't have your kids' best interests in mind. We need to be a source of hope. We need to lean into what God has called us to. And listen, it's not just our kids. We need each other. Like, listen, if you're part of a small group, I can almost promise you there's someone that is struggling in the issues of lust or adultery. Are you someone that says, I'm gonna take you out to coffee and I'm gonna pray with you and I'm going to share my story with you and I'm gonna help hold you accountable and you're gonna find grace with me? Or is it, man, we don't talk about that stuff because it's uncomfortable. It's not helping anyone. I think we understand or we can see that the gospel truly has hold of our identity when our past sin and failure, it's something that we don't need to hide anymore, but it actually becomes part of our testimony. This is who I was. This is where I fell short, but this is how God has redeemed me and he can do the same for you. We need to be a light into this area. So here's what we're gonna do right now. We're going to close our service a little differently. We're gonna close with having communion. And uh, just in a second, the ushers are going to come forward and pass out the elements. But here's what communion is. It's followers of Jesus Christ taking a moment and remembering Christ's death on our behalf. And listen, don't pack anything up right now, please. 
hang with me, this is important. I think after a message like this, there should be kind of two feelings we should be feeling as we go towards communion. I do think there should be a soberness over our sin. I think there should be an understanding that man, our sin and brokenness is ugly and Jesus paid a heavy price for that sin. Like when Jesus' body was broken and blood was shed, that was for our sin in these areas. So I want our hearts to be sober towards that, but I also think there should be a lot of joy that we are not defined by our sin, that Jesus price paid the debt and he is alive and sin is defeated and we are new. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I'd encourage you to partake in communion. I'm gonna call the ushers forward right now. I'm gonna close our service in prayer. And uh, as they pass out the elements, our worship team's gonna lead us in a song and then they'll lead us in the taking of elements after the song. Let me do this. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for uh, this message. I thank you for your word. And God, I just pray that you work in hearts right now. Um, I pray that this would be a service and sermon of healing, that this would be a place of healing, um, that shame and isolation don't win the day in our hearts. I pray that your spirit would confirm in us that we are known and loved by you, that your love for us is greater than anything in this world, that nothing can separate us from your love. God, would you help us? Would we honor you with our bodies, with our minds, with our thoughts? We need your spirit's power in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.